Welcome to another episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Matt Mace, and today I'm taking you back to the green room, the only place where sustainability professionals can relax and remove some of that corporate armour as we get under the skin of the life, passions and beliefs of the business leaders. This afternoon, uh, the sun is shining. I'm in central London again, and this time at Carillion's offices uh, to talk to the chief sustainability officer here, David Picton. I'm sure those that are regular visitors to the ED site will know of David. Um, Not too long ago, he was part of our 60-second sustainability skills, which is a lot easier to type than it is to say out loud. Um, David, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. So, let's get started with the green room. Um, And I believe in that particular video, you were highlighting the importance of storytelling. Um, Considering that you've worked for the British Royal Air Force, Motorola and Sky and also as a supply chain director here before becoming Chief Sustainability Officer. Um, whereabouts are we in your story right now? Is this the beginning, the middle, the end? Well, it's a, it's a great question, actually, yeah, indeed. This is this is an interesting phase. When we do a lot of uh, career coaching and, and, and work, I think careers go through cycles. Uh, so this is perhaps a cycle where I'm starting to think about um, the legacy I leave. You know, as I head to my fifth decade, uh, you know, I actually start to think about what I've achieved so far, but what's still left to, to, to come. So in terms of telling a story, I think we're probably uh, about two-thirds of the way through now, two-thirds approaching the three-quarters mark uh, in terms of professional uh, output. Okay, and it's it's um, it's quite a rise. Um, you've gone through, like I said, many different companies and many different hats in this company alone. So how do you, I suppose, keep your head above the water and constantly adapt to not just new surroundings and new people to work with, but, but the new the new sectors and the new aims? Well, and again, a very good question in terms of keeping relevant and updated because it changes so much. I think particularly in sustainability, it's a very dynamic area. If you're going to make sure that you're relevant, uh, that you're talking about the right things, and that more importantly, you're, you're targeting the right sort of vision, you've, you've got to stay up to date. So, I mean, to be fair, obviously the ED work is very important. I think that that's very well written up. It's very readable. Uh, it's very good and very relevant. Uh, and shows like ED Live, I think, it may bring together a lot of people to do just that. Uh, partnerships are, are critical for us as well. Things like the UK Green building council business in the community uh, and in some of our uh, international work as well we've got regionally relevant and specific partnerships like the canadian council for aboriginal business so a lot of what we do is to feed off those information sources and make sure that we understand how we can influence their agendas but also learn from what they're doing sometimes with our competitors you know because we are all in this together so areas like the supply chain sustainability school is made up of a lot of our competitors we all work together for the good of the industry so uh, there's a lot of different ways of approaching it, but I think you just need to be hungry for information the whole time. And, and does that hunger, especially you mentioned the competitor aspect of it, does that hunger really lower those those that kind of perhaps competitive edge that you have with one another? There's less pointy elbows and more kind of collaboration that way? Or? Uh, there's collaboration when it's for the good of the industry. Again, I think the school, the supply chain school is a good, uh, a good example. That, that exists purely to raise sustainability schools across um, not only the construction sector where it started, but uh, we, we helped to introduce it to the facilities management side as well. So across the full built environment and that's the same for example for green building council so so yeah i think there's an element of collaboration where it's appropriate but then of course we are all in business as well so i think it's then for each company to work out how they make a difference and how they set themselves apart so for us for example our sustainability strategy is a key part of our offer to clients to customers i spend a lot of time trying to think how we can make it competitive how we can make it look different be different uh, and ambition you know that it is different to our competitors and hopefully then you know offers both customers and suppliers and our own people as well i think it's a, you know, we're in a war for talent let's not forget mm. so i think a lot of people 
people joining our company will cite the sustainability record we've got uh, and talk about how important it is to work for a responsible company. So I, I never forget the fact that actually sustainability is all about people. So unless it's inspiring, um, you know, you can probably miss a point, really. And it's a really interesting thing you, you mentioned about that hunger of the next generation to come in and work for companies like Carillion. When you kind of first, I suppose, embarked, not necessarily with Carillion, but on your kind of just professional career in general, was was sustainability, was there a hunger there? Was there a demand for it? How How is the landscape different to, from when you started out? Yeah, that, again, that's a, that's a really good challenge because I joined the workforce in the 80s. Mm. So, so I joined at a time when I think uh, general UK feeling was off the back of what I might call the Thatcher years, you know, where people were striving forward in free market economies. And so, you know, markets, industry, companies had very different ambitions, very different priorities, uh, and the country as a whole, you you know, if you look at the UK, had very different challenges at that time. And I've seen that come through the end of the Cold War, uh, through peacekeeping in the 90s and a, sh- a change as, as the world order changed in the 90s. Then a post-9-11 world where we saw some very different challenges, of course, and very different frictions on the international stage. Uh, and then into what we now have. Here we are in a decade of, of, of real instability in terms mm-hmm. of political uncertainty. Um, Brexit negotiations, which of course we haven't even formally begun yet, so we don't know where they're going to take us. Uh, so I think the one thread that's gone through all of that, you know, to answer your question, sustainability, I think, is about planning for the long term. It's about staying relevant and dynamic to whatever those changes are and then trying to look ahead to how you position yourself within those. Personally, for me, uh, I positioned myself by uh, study largely. I mean, I studied professionally and then I studied academically as well. So I studied for an MBA, I studied for a master's degree in, in international strategy. You know, and those, those gave me some great exposure to really quite, quite brave thinking in some areas, but also gave me some tools to take back into the workplace as I changed jobs, moved between companies, saw different sectors, led different teams, uh, and then as a result got a chance to see that sustainability, if we define it in its real sense, surviving for the future, um, was about adaptation. It was about reinventing. It was about learning skills and never, ever stopping asking questions. Was this um, not necessarily the end goal, but did you did you have an idea of when you like pretty much at school that this was an area you wanted to get into? Was it a, a business aspect, or was it the environmental side of it as well? Or? Well, uh, what I did for my first degree was geography, so mm. I studied particularly, I think, human interaction with environments, uh, not specifically on a green sense, but perhaps in city development and the way that man and natural resources would come together. Uh, and that geography degree gave me a real interest. It was it was the one subject that I absolutely loved beyond all others. So it was it was an easy one to study because it, you know, it, it felt very strong. And I think now when I talk to students and when I talk to schools now, I think they still are, surprisingly, doing geography, but it's, it's become much sharper. You know, they will talk about life sciences, environmental management. They'll talk about their path um, from a first degree and that to go on to an MSc in environmental management or sustainable management. So I think it's become much clearer that there's a direct link. And if you take me back to 30 years or so when I was doing it, it was probably inferred. And I think it was behind the scenes, but it's very, very clear today that that's the direct link now. And I think we're so much more aware of resource pressure, resource constraint, water shortages, the need to conserve resources, bring that into a climate change agenda as well. You know, I think I think we, we know so much more than we, than we ever knew before. And, um, you know, you just listed an array of, of environmental issues that are interacting daily with, with businesses. Um What's the kind of key skill you need to be able to keep on top of all these, you know, multifaceted issues? 
I think you've got to be probably open to testing and challenging yourself. I mean, for 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 example, we, you know, we work in the built environment here. So Carillion is a built environment company working on the full life cycle, both of initial construction and then building and facilities management, which could last for decades. You know, we could be managing a contract in, in a building for 10, 20, 30 years. So I think the one thread that would run through that might be resource conservation and resource management. Uh, we've just done some work with the Green Building Council, for example, on embodied carbon. Mm. So I think whilst everybody has rightly been focused on operational carbon, cutting emissions and air quality, you know, and we remain focused on that, there's a prize to be had behind the scenes on embodied carbon as well. So if, if you're going to build something, you know, you, we work with our key suppliers now to try and cut the carbon in, in the concrete, in the steel. Uh, and then if we're doing retrofit type work as well, then we'll look ahead to how that might be uh, carbon efficient too. So, so very, you know, very, very different ways, I think, of, of seeing that. But it, sector specific is probably the thread that runs through it. And, I mean, you, of course, worked directly in the supply chain here at Caridian yeah. um, for, for it would be a year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're clearly well versed in perhaps the issues they face that perhaps don't necessarily line up to sustainability um i was having a conversation um with someone from hp earlier and they were mentioning how you know their efforts for a circular economy may clash somewhat with the procurements idea of fixing long-term contracts of this stuff so how how when you when you move from supply chain director to um, chief sustainability officer how have you integrated sustainability across the departments using that knowledge? Yeah, what we do is to, uh, to try and keep it fairly simple, we've, um, we, we've voiced it as the three betters. So the strategy for sustainability across all of our functional areas is about building a better business, better communities and a better environment. Uh, and within that, there's various um, specific areas. You know, We might focus in on um, customer trust, for example, ethical behaviours. Uh, and that very clearly links to developing supply chains as well, because it, most of what we deliver is through supply chains, subcontractors and various other areas of specialist skills. So the supply chain is a very key part of our brand. It's a very key part of our ecosystem you know, that actually delivers Carillion's work. Uh, and that's referring back to things like the supply chain school is why we invest in that. But it's why we also target areas like um, the flexible framework. We reached level five and we're now looking ahead to areas like ISO 20400. Um, we're looking at areas where that ethical procurement, ethical sourcing links in not just to the materials we buy, but the people we work with as well. Um, it, it's it's no accident, I think, that we're all now very focused on the Modern Slavery Act. And, and, and for a number of years, particularly for us, um, uh, we've been focused on the welfare of workers. That links in very clearly to, to safety, to health, to well-being. Uh, and I think, you know, there's quite apart from the moral arguments against that, there's a very clear business case as well. You know, if you're not investing in people and if you're not looking after their health, safety and welfare, then they won't want to work for you. They won't work at their most productive. And, you know, you really will face a lot of problems. So I think both morally and, and business case-wise, you know, sustainability it stacks up these days. In fact, it's almost a... You know, it's, it's something you can't argue against, and, and if you do, you're a little bit out of step. So, so that's that's certainly a change I've seen in that move. And, and the fact that the business case is now stacking up, how has that changed how you operate? I mean, does it mean that more people understand it, so there's less integration, or does it mean there's more people wanting to do stuff, and so that's more initiatives you have to back up? No, I think it's it's a it's a probably a, a combination of two things. Uh, I think it still inspires a lot of people. So, at operational level, the idea of getting involved with volunteering or community projects or environmental work uh, or just areas perhaps where you work with schools and young people you know that that inspires people so so it's an inspiration tool 
and there's no doubt about that first and foremost it's also something you're not having to fight the leadership for you know this is something that i brief the board on every four weeks and they are completely bought into the need for this and the value that it brings to carillion uh, the chief executive is personally invested in this he's been leading bitc's community leadership team for the last four years you know so so i'm i'm not having to push against anyone that objects to this i mean this is a tough sector competitive tight margins a lot of really really high impact high tempo work but despite all of those pressures people still recognize we have to do this uh, and that we must do this if we have to have anything of a long-term competitive future. So uh, against that backdrop, not only does it inspire people to want to get involved, but we also recognise the commercial value of it. So so for me, it's really just a question then of keeping that all very lean, very high impact, very simple, so that people can see what we're asking them to do, and how they can make a personal contribution. I think it comes right back to that. It isn't a strategy. It isn't something on paper. It isn't something just left on a shelf. This is about people making choices every day. And I come back to my definition of ethics as well. It's about making ethical choices, which I usually tell my teenage girls as well. These are the things you choose when you think no one's watching. You know, and I think that's a great definition of sustainability and ethical business as well. You know, you choose to do this because you know it's the right thing. And you know that somewhere down the line, you'll get the benefit from it, even if you don't feel it immediately today. And um, you mentioned um, your, your family just briefly then, um, and I will come on to um, some of your, your targets and achievements, uh, Carillion as a whole. Um, when, you, when you hit a big target that perhaps you've been chasing for a few years, do you, do you go home and, and, and celebrate? Do, do, do your family have the same kind of level of interest in this as you do? Or? Um, probably not the same. Mm. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think that would be stretching a point. <laughs> but it, honestly, uh, it, it's an interesting phase they're at because the girls are 15 and 17 now, so they're doing uh, GCSEs and A-levels. Mm. So they are a good indication of the next generation joining the workforce. You know, that they, they already have part-time jobs and they're thinking ahead to what careers they would do. So they're a great li- test um, mm. you know really of what people are thinking they genuinely would say uh, and they do have some interesting discussions they, they come and play back to us you know that they, they understand what we do they they flick through and read the sustainability report uh, they saw the queen's award that we won for sustainability mm. i mean that, you know, that, that was a huge amount of pride so so i think what they do also see is when i go into schools and do speakers for schools type engagements you know uh, quite apart i did one at their school you know, and quite apart from obviously the the, the embarrassment of having <laughs> dad come in and talk to to the school uh, i know privately you know when they, when they do admit you know that it that it's great to see that that is the link between businesses and where they're starting to see their futures and they are quite rightly questioning of businesses that are called out for not having the right approach you know we have a very clear link in the media now uh, you know, people expose businesses exposed mm-hmm. for not doing the right thing and that does impact you know that impacts on people thinking well would, would i want to work for that business so back to the point we've made a couple of times yeah I, I i tell them what i do as well because it helps i think to blur the boundaries between work and home uh, which works for me you know uh, in terms of that sense you know just to let them know where i go every day yeah of course <laughs> and um i suppose then they they're still kind of mapping out their their futures um and I suppose if you could, if you could go back, if you weren't in sustainability, if you, if it was in an ideal world where already all these issues had been solved and there was there was no need for CSR departments and sustainability was just that doing business better type aspect, where where would you where would you consider your, like see yourself going in a profession? Mm. It's a good question. I, I would like to think that is the ultimate ambition. Mm. That you, you know you don't need a CSR department. You, you don't need uh, you know anything separate doing this because exactly as you say, everybody's mm. choosing to do this anyway. And to be fair we've got you know a pretty lean operational company here anyway so that's partly true you know 
we have a very small team. This isn't done by that small team. You know, this is done by the operations uh, across the Middle East, Canada and the UK. Uh, if I wasn't doing this, though, I think I would, uh, I would love to write. I think I would love, and that comes back, I think, to that thirst and that hunger for information. I would like to write because arguably we, um, we have uh, a society now where information sharing is, is the one currency of human engagement. So I think whether whatever channel that may be, whether it be instantaneously through social media, uh, longer term through uh, through books, which obviously still remain a, a phenomenal source of information mm. and reference, uh, journalism, you know, as, as we're doing. I think I think the idea of sharing a human story, sharing human experience, putting an interpretation onto something, and helping people to learn is such such a natural human state that that I'd want to do something like that. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned um, putting uh, you know personal interpretation on something because um, obviously the agenda's shifted, it's elevated in recent years with the SDGs, the Paris Agreement, and I'd be interested to hear your kind of personal interpretations on a, on a few key trends. It's almost like um, a Rorschach ink test almost, but that obviously doesn't translate real on a podcast, me holding up ink blots. So instead I was hoping I could just read out a couple of words, maybe a couple of phrases, yeah. and you just say the first thing that kind sure. of comes into your head. So I'll, I'll start off then with a better tomorrow. A better tomorrow. Um, that is the first thing coming into my head there is the fact that this is our strap line. You know, we are making tomorrow a better place. And when I link that sustainability journey to that, and that's the title we chose for last year's report, we're making the point explicitly that this isn't separate to what the company does. It is what the company does. So what's happening in my head is our core purpose. Okay, brilliant. And um, mentioned it once already, but the Paris Agreement? Yeah, the Paris Agreement was important because I think at that time, you know, for the first time as well, we had a real clear recognition of the climate change effects, the climate change impacts, and the fact we all had to do something. We had to do something. Not companies, not governments, not individuals, all of us. We were all in it together. We are all in in climate respect, absolutely no boundaries and recognises no political parties. Climate is all around us. Uh, I had a personal specific um, impact on this. We went to the Maldives last year Mm. on holiday. And, you know, when you actually spend a little bit of time, albeit a little bit of time, at just about two metres above sea level, you know, and that's broadly the highest point you are. Uh, you really, really get it firsthand. Uh, and when you watch palm trees leaning into the ocean and, and, and you realise how much there's a strong likelihood that the Maldives might see our first environmental refugees uh, as the world. And then you, you watch the island president, you know, and you watch the, the story they've had of trying to bring this to consciousness and the efforts in, in you know, the Copenhagen negotiations before mm-hmm. Paris as well. You realise this is real. This is real today, now, uh, and we have to act. Quite, quite well timed because my next uh, word was holidays. Holidays, yeah. Holidays are, uh, I think holidays are an essential part of well-being. Mm. Uh, so uh, what, what, I, what happens in my head when you say holidays are a chance just to reflect and take stock. I, I've, I've, th- this is a great job. It's an absolutely fantastic role because the ink is never dry. Mm. I never, ever get through my to-do list. I've never, ever finished what I need to do. So, so it's a phenomenally challenging and fascinating world. But you've got to reflect. Otherwise, you'll just you know you'll just run yourself into the ground. So holidays for me a chance to reflect whether that's skiing and being up in the mountains. Another point about climate change. Uh, once again, this year we saw some challenging s- snow conditions. You mm. know that the climate was making the ski industry uh, a really challenging industry to sustain for the long term. So you know, you, you know when you realise how this starts to impact things that people have never previously considered, you realise again you have to act. So holidays a time to reflect but also perhaps a time just to think how we're all in it together. Mm. Okay, and um, on the topic of all in it together, someone who's not, uh, Donald Trump. Ah, okay. Um, 
One of my favourite um, points about Donald Trump, I think, is the, the commentators saying that actually he's doing the climate change yeah, agenda yeah. a favour because, of course, it is making a little bit of a mockery of climate denial. I don't think anybody seriously believes that this is not an issue for our, our society and for our world and the fact that he's making it such a almost a, you know, a, a circus you know, in that sense is, is demonstrating how climate denial and, and climate change denial is simply... Uh, an anathema it's just it's just something that doesn't have any place in our modern world and i mean you know the the response from states and, and cities and business levels you know from from the america in the, in the wake of it has showed that actually it, it, it may help like, like it's been suggested so well the other thing i think um interesting you know everybody, everybody has a view on trump i mean mm. <laughs> like marmite no nobody is ambivalent i think mm-hmm. um but I, but i think one of the other points is that um behaviors demonstrated by that you know the man if you like you know refer to isolationism and, and what have you back to my geography degree as well you know it was all about communities and the way communities develop and the way communities interact with their environment so isolationism again is 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 is, is a dead concept you know we, we cannot isolate mm. ourselves in this modern multinational world from each other we have to work together uh, so that idea of isolationism, denial, it, it is almost King Canute style, uh, just trying to turn back the tide mm. of reality. Uh, so it, it is a, it's quite a sideshow to watch, I think. But on the upside, it brings a lot of these issues into topical debate, which can only be a good thing. Science-based targets? Oh, science-based targets. Well, we're just considering one right now okay. ourselves, which is uh, designed to take forward our carbon ambition. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that is that we've had a, a, a good run of, of uh, emissions cutting. You know, we've cut our carbon target. We got there five years early. Uh, we set the carbon target originally in 2011. We got there by 2015. You know, so so we, having set a 2020 basic emissions cut, that's probably the next step for us now is to think, well, how do we make this a little bit more literally scientific how do we make it a bit sharper how do we make it a bit more ambitious Uh, i think unless you are doing your fair share which comes back to our point about isolationism arguably uh, i think unless you're doing your fair share you're not you're not really contributing in in the way you you possibly can Mm. so that's what science-based targets would mean to me okay and lastly uh Strong and stable. Ah, strong and stable. Yeah, always the you know the strap line that that failed to be anything but in the <laughs> UK elections. Um, strong and stable is probably a great ambition for any organisation, any political party, or for any family. You know, so which, whichever unit you belong mm. to or you describe, I think we all seek that idea of strength and stability. Um, it might be something that just has to remain an ambition in, in today's dynamic world. You know, the UK is a massively multinational society uh, and it brings with it a whole range of challenges. And I think unless you target integration, unless you go after collaboration, unless you recognise that we're all in it together, you won't ever have that strength and stability. Uh, I think the very worst of all behaviours at the moment is to try to turn back any kind of clock, is to try to imagine you can hark back to the past. The past is used useful only for one thing and that's for learning lessons that we hope never to repeat our mistakes uh, and i think it, you know if you view it in that sense uh, trying to turn anything back towards the past is probably just a uh, an ambition you'll never succeed in okay and um it's something we're not going to succeed in but it's something i'm going to do actually now is, is kind of just turn back to the past just a little bit um from when you first kind of um laid out your your sustainability strategy at Carillion, and you know since that point Thirty-six million pounds in savings been attributed to sustainability. Water use fallen by more than a third since 2012. Ninety-five percent plus diversion of waste from landfills. Thirty-four uh, percent carbon reduction, as you as you mentioned. When you set that out, 
do you, do you have a, a almost like a pet target one that's your favorite and you're like that's the one that's the big flagship one i really really want to hit yes i think i think when we looked at it this year we thought where do we go from here i, I was in geneva last year it was an absolute privilege to go across to the un headquarters in geneva and and talk to the un about our contribution to sustainability and and obviously to the sustainable development goals and that was really what it was about how a small relatively small FTSE 250 like Carillion could make a discernible contribution so that idea of making a contribution has been going around my head since last autumn when I was over in Geneva that day Uh, when we were launching this year's sustainability report which obviously is now live uh, we wanted to really do something which made one single contribution uh, because obviously there's a whole range of balance in it and sustainability has to have an economic environmental and social balance if it's to really be authentic but the one thing we wanted to change was people's lives so we thought how, how can we do this in, in the most um, measurable way so we thought right well, we will remove one million barriers to employability through positive encounters with the world of work by 2030 so my pet target is that i think uh, we only launched it a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, we're already working with you know up to 50,000 young people a year in terms of schools and engagements career support literacy support and so on we've got apprenticeships we've got a whole range of skills investment including that in our own people diversity health safety talent well-being so there's a whole range of barriers in people's minds that are, can be quite powerful resistors to people getting ahead in their careers or getting ahead in life um, our volunteers, uh, they get up to six days a year to do something about that. So my pet target would be to remove one million barriers to employability by 2030. If we can do that, I think you know, by that stage I should probably be retired myself uh, and be able to look back and say, you know, we did a good thing here. Uh, we did something for the long term. We were all in it together uh, and we changed lives. So it's a really interesting, um, a really interesting target, and I think it's definitely one that that does need tackling. And I, I'm trying to remember where it was. Not software, I can't remember. But I was at a debate last year. Um, I think it's hosted by maybe ICRS, and they were basically just discussing um, whether CSR and sustainability was kind of becoming an elitist profession. And you, it was a big panel debate, a whole host of people there, and you look around the room, and it's it's you know still um you know a bunch of men actually sitting around a room not many young people or a few millennials but not people straight out of school not many um uh, women voices so is is it a case of numbers a numbers game this target or is it a case of you have to have that diverse pool of talent as well oh you have to have if if it's to mean anything realistic at all you have to have a diverse pool of uh, not only genders but also faiths race mm. religion um, lifestyle preferences. You know, I mean, that's the richness of diversity. Uh, coming back to the, the my teenage girls that I mentioned, they've got some great challenges for anyone who argues against that. You know, they absolutely believe, and they are growing up in a society which has its strength through understanding and recognizing and embracing diversity. Um, to your specific points, the, the little tiny core team I've got are all female mm-hmm. that do this in sustainability. Okay. So I've, I've got you know my sustainability team who are fantastic mm. professionals. Uh, both across the community side of the world and across the environmental side of the world. They've got master's degree qualifications mm. that they've gone and got. Um, but the lady that wrote the report this year for us, that, that pulled all of our sustainability reports together across 
13 different time zones across Caribbean operations as diverse as the Middle East, Canada, and the UK. You know, she's a millennial. So, uh, you know, right away, you know, we, we aren't, you know, honestly can genuinely mm. point to people doing this. Uh, and then I can point to people on our contracts and projects, again, who do this you know, across gender, across different preferences, across all sorts of age groups as well. So absolutely to your point, there, I think it, this does matter and I think it inspires people, but only if it's real, only if it's nice and diverse. Uh, and that diversity then brings a strength of thinking and choice that you just can't get from a, a single or mm. particularly not an elitist approach to it. Okay, and you mentioned that that target's a, a few a few weeks old, and, and you also hit a lot of the the other targets early. I think there was a twenty twenty deadline for a few of them. Yeah, and you, yeah it you, was a twenty twenty strategy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you you hit that early for a lot of them. You know, once a goal is in sight, and especially when you know you're going to get there early, what keeps that motivation to not just hit it but accelerate past it? Yeah, that, uh, that's that's a challenge because we got to so last year, twenty sixteen, we got through uh, most of the year looking at ourselves and thinking, knowing exactly that that we were on track for or had exceeded a lot of the targets early, um, and, and that was around about the same time that, that I went to Geneva and, and really got into the thinking of the, of the sustainable development goals. So there were at least nine of those goals. Um, that made a specific difference to us that we thought we could have an impact on. And, of course, they've got to stretch through to mm. uh, 2030. So automatically, I think there was a sense of continuity beyond 2020. And one of the things I had to fight when I first took over this in my head, you know, I had to fight in my head not to change everything when I took on the role of Chief Sustainability Officer because the strategy was good. I mm. had to let it play out. But we've got to the point now where it has played out and we are now just three years away from 2020. So I think subtly carefully you know we just looked at this knowing that the sustainability strategy worked and thinking right which bits should we tighten up you know which bits have got fresh ambition which bits have we achieved and they have become business as usual and that's what we did in last autumn we just we just refreshed the strategy slightly and when you look at our sustainability report that's exactly what's in the start of it the three betters came out of that uh, we previously had six positive outcomes mm. uh, and we'd achieved a whole range of impact there the three betters keeps it a little simpler focuses our, our people on what we're going to do next uh, and they align very nicely to those sustainable development goals to give it a, a bit more long-term ambition now. Was there ever any point um, during during that period of time where you were closing on those goals where you, you perhaps there's a little thought in the back of your head that perhaps these weren't ambitious enough? I mean, the, the whole idea of setting a goal is you're, it's meant to be one that you're not sure when you set it how you're going to get there and whatnot. And, and I suppose as you learn more about it, you think, okay, that could have been a lot more ambitious or is it just a case of, but we can make it more ambitious in the future? Well, it, yeah, I, I think you've got to be very careful with targets as well because if they are too easy to achieve, then of course, you know, you, you, you've done you've sold yourself short and then mm. you've sold your, your organisation short. So these were set in 2011. I mean, mm. I, I wasn't even with Carillion then. So, so when they were set in 2011, a number of them, particularly the one relating to profit from sustainability, I, I think we're the only company, that certainly the ones I, I've come across in our sector, that has an audited, declared contribution to profit from sustainability. So it makes it a very clear business case, and it's a, it's a great one to take to the investment community, of course. You, know, you can demonstrate that choosing the right things, doing the right things, uh, makes your company more profitable for the shareholders. So, you know, you know we, we exist in a market economy and you've got to recognise that. Um, in 2011, the idea that sustainability could contribute £40 million by 2020, <laughs> that was probably pretty ambitious then. Definitely, yeah. uh, Especially with no clear roadmap to how they were going to get there. Mm. Uh, so I think that uh, that idea that there was a feeling, there was a sense, there was a belief, there was a faith that this was going to work and could be made to work uh, was what drove that target. And, and at the time, very ambitious it was. It's a good example of inspiring people to do the right thing, actually, because people have 
cottoned onto that. They've they've run workshops in remote parts of our business, thinking. So what you're saying is, if I do this and choose this behaviour, I can save money for the company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. You know, and they actually, you know, in in tough times, they they recognise actually they're not being asked to do something else. They're just being asked to do the right thing and measure it. So I think when you come back to those targets, quite often the the, the breakthrough moment, the eureka moment, has been recognizing that things can be measured or finding ways to measure them and when you can do that you can demonstrate progress and i think that's the human state as well you know we are progressing all the time okay and um we we mentioned we touched on the kind of holidays um earlier and you you spoke about your family you know having a kind of vested interest in this Uh, in terms of a a work week is is this something that's always on your mind 24 7 Do, do weekends give you a chance to kind of clock off you mentioned it's Earlier, you mentioned the kind of blurring of the two. So, how, do, how does that kind of relation work? Work and um, you know, privacy play out. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a busy week. There's no doubt about it. Um, I was in you know in the Midlands yesterday. Here we are in London today. Mm-hmm. Back up in the Midlands tomorrow. Uh, I was in Aberdeen the other week. We've got a very significant project up there. You know, so so this is a. There's no doubt about it. This is the highest tempo I've ever worked at. So, my big indulgence at the weekend is the park run. Okay, five k yeah. run on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock. You know that, that doesn't nothing gets in the way of that five k run. And that's just a, a moment to almost clear the head and go into the weekend. Uh, you know, with a good burst of endorphins, I guess. Um, but it is a chance to reflect. It's a chance mm. to read. It's a chance to catch up. Uh, and there's no doubt in modern families as well. You know, you you you've got to take those chances as well. You know, in our family life cycle, the, you know, the girls are very independent now as well. So, you know, it, it's all about quality of time rather than spending much quantity of time together. So, uh, those weekends are a great chance to catch up with uh, what's been happening. Uh, it's a great chance to catch up with friends. Uh, and I think unless you, uh, you know, unless you are a workaholic, which is, you know, in itself an arguably unsustainable approach to life, uh, you need that chance just to disconnect. I do the safety role as well now, so, so mm. I lead safety for the company, which is an integral part of our, our sustainability strategy. Uh, and that has meant that because we are a 24-7, 365 company, I've got to have one eye you know, at all times on what's happening, We're just just on the, on the phone or on a feed or on texts or on the systems and processes that we've got for monitoring and reporting through. Uh, and there's no doubt that that has brought new levels of connectedness. Uh, so I think you have to be very specific that for a point of time you will have somebody watching your back so that you can disconnect. Mm. And I think that's our modern digital society. Unless you do have processes and, uh, and and ways of specifically disconnecting and knowing that somebody's still got the ball, is still carrying responsibility should do be needed, uh, I think unless you can make that conscious decision to you know, disconnect, then you, you, know, you will undermine yourself over time. Yeah, I'm actually a runner myself, and so is our editor, Luke. And I find it is that brilliant way to clear your head and almost, yeah, kind of temporarily get rid of get rid of your worries. Mm-hmm. And I suppose in in this kind of uncertain climate that we're in, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have that period of time where you almost just blank out. And um, in regards to that uncertain time that we're in right now, how do you see the role of a sustainability professional changing in the short term future and in the long term future as well? I think in the short term future, we the, the biggest contribution we can make, I think, is is to is to keep one eye on the future and keep one eye on. I mean, we talked before about strong and stable, but I think certainly stable as best you can. Uh, the idea that you keep an eye on a strategy, uh, what you're here to do, 
Uh, and it, it, that would be different, obviously, organisation to organisation. But for us at the moment, if you look at what we do at Carillion, we serve the built environment. So let's keep let's keep focused on what we do. Let's keep focused on the right choices, uh, on keeping people safe, making them healthy, um, using resources in a responsible way. So, so we've got a strategy mm. which in itself becomes a source of stability and comfort. So I think that's the short term. For the long term, I think we then just need to see where some of the dice fall, you know, and see where some of the pieces land. Uh, in a UK sense, of course, we're not sure what that means for us with our, our future with the European markets. Um, right now, of course, there are a lot of concerns in different areas of the world, which will change quite quickly as well. So I think for the long term, uh, you can set a, a general direction. You can set a general course. Uh, again, come back to things like million barriers. But the idea of million barriers or one of its, power, one of its powers, in a way, is to make it flexible enough to adapt. So... Uh, that might mean that we're working with some of the First Nation communities in Canada, for example, or it might mean that we're working with some ex-offenders in the UK because we do some of the prisons facilities management. So it gives us a great chance to do work experience for prisoners before they're released. Uh, it could mean that we're working with um, individual charities uh, in, in the Middle East uh, or different areas. And it might just mean that some of the, the investments we make in worker welfare uh, are, are just as valid as, as that. But you know, when you look at that flexibility, I think if you set a rigid goal with too prescriptive um, guidance around it, then you'll miss an opportunity. So I think for the long term, the more flexible you can make your strategy to adapt to changing circumstances, changing regional priorities as well, then the more successful it will be. Okay, and um, this is, a, I suppose, a, a similar question. Um, and I was going to ask you um, about the best bit of advice you'd received, but you actually sent me over a um, an article that you were featured in not too long ago, and it was kind of in a little pull-out box about, um, you know, a slower day's not coming, so live today, live for this week. So I won't ask that. Instead, I'll ask what's the uh, best bit of advice you can give to someone who's looking to get into this profession, who, who's already in it but struggling to really make make some strides so far? Mm. I, I think the best bit of advice to, to come into this profession, back to what you mentioned earlier on, I think, if don't see this as elitist or, or in any way different. You know, I mean, I, I came into this role via operations. You know, so that's been the one thread that's run through mm. my entire career is, is delivering operations. Um, and I think the best bit of advice, I think, when you come in is if make yourself a specialist by all means. You know, read widely, read incredibly deeply as well focus on things that you believe in and you can understand and that you can translate for others because I think back to the points we made I think um, uh, when I did the smarter reporting back in March for ED as well uh, you know making the point there that the storytelling is a really powerful human trait so I think coming into the profession to tell stories authentic stories backed up with a bit of scientific evidence with good ambitions and goals for the future it, it doesn't really matter which bit of the agenda you choose uh, I mean I've got to a stage where I try all the time to think of the three balance you know the three areas uh, economic environment and social but if you start off with a social specialization then that's fine you know, if it matters to you you can help it matter to others Okay, David, um, I'd say that's a pretty inspiring way to, to wrap up this story, or at least this, uh, this episode. So um, thank you again for your insight today. Um, I think our listeners really appreciate hearing from these leaders in sustainability when the, when the subjects are perhaps a little less business orientated and they, they get a chance to see, sell, see how people tick. So um, I hope you've enjoyed yourself as well. Very much so, yeah. I have too. Um, I hope the listeners have. And we'll be back soon with the next episode. But before I go, just a reminder that these podcasts are available from iTunes and could also be listened to via the ED website. So this is Matt Mace signing off from the Green Room. Goodbye. Goodbye.